Okay, well, good evening. Welcome to our Bible study, Wednesday Night Bible Study. Apologize for the delay, having some um, technology issues as far as getting our sound up and technology up. So here we are. Glad you guys could make it. Those of you joining us online, glad you could be here. We had finished last week talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13 was where we were looking. And I ended with this interesting truth that... The, the apostles weren't really looking to replace Christ with the other two prophets, Elijah and Moses. What they were trying to do was state that these guys deserve to be worshipped. They deserve to be recognized on a level with Christ, and that was the issue. So I ended with the suggestion, very strong suggestion, that we don't do that here at Marion Hills or any church. If you ever find yourself... In another place, another ministry, another church down the road, and you discover that at any level, the leadership or the people believe that the pastor deserves to have a monument built or in some way recognized uh, on the level of Christ, I would strongly, strongly suggest you find a new ministry. Now, I love this next story. We're, let's go ahead and turn to uh, the book of Mark this time. We're going to try a different gospel just to get a chance to see how the other gospel uh, penmen have put down the story on paper. So turn to Mark and look at verse uh, chapter 9, please. Now this story is a pretty common one. I, I am pretty sure that you guys are going to be familiar with the text and the story. Looking at verse 14, when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway, all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. He asked his disciples, what question ye with him? All right, so he comes down, he sees the scribes and his apostles having a conversation. So they come here, they salute him. That doesn't mean, you know, the salute, that means they're saying, hi, where you been? Good to see you again, right? And the first question that Jesus asked is, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> now, Jesus knows what they're talking about. How does he know? He's God. He knows what they're talking about. I think Jesus is trying to show them that, remember, not too long ago, what did Jesus Christ tell them to beware of? The leaven of the Pharisees. Christ has already informed them, watch out for the, watch, watch out for them, watch out for their teaching, watch out for their attacks. And um, he says, what question you with them? Verse 17, and one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And whatsoever he taketh him, he teareth him. And he foameth, gnasheth his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. All right, so we have a man here whose son is possessed with a demon. When uh, he sees Christ, he realizes that this guy, the disciples, these guys can't help it. They've already tried. The disciples cannot seem to cast this demon from my son, but this man, Christ, he can. So he comes to Christ, he says, will you please help me with my son? Now, I love this story because when I see this story, very little information is given us about the son. A lot of information is given us about the dad. And that is where I want to focus today, is on the dad. So first of all, consider what this father has said in verse 18. The demon, I mean, just the fact that his son is demon-possessed, right there, full stop. How many dads would stick around with a demon-possessed son? I mean, there's a whole lot of reasons why dads leave their families, leave their wives, leave their kids, and a whole lot less reasons than this. I'm not saying they're good. I'm just saying there's a lot of men out there who justify 
leaving their family. I got a better life to live. There's more out for me than what this family can offer me. You know, these kids, I never signed up for this. I never wanted this, right? Uh, she's not the woman I married five years ago. Whatever reasons these guys are leaving their families. This man has a demon-possessed son and has not abandoned him. This man has stuck by his son's side. We do not see any mention of his wife. We can make assumptions. They would all be assumptions. Maybe she died. Maybe she left him. Maybe she's at home taking care of the other kids while he has this son with Christ. We do not know. So we're not going to speak on the wife. I want to speak on the husband. Now, it gets worse. Not only is his son demon-possessed, but we're told that he foams, gnashes his teeth, pines away. He says, I spake to thy disciples, they should cast him out. Let's go ahead and move on to verse 20. Uh, they brought him to him, and they saw him straight with the spirit tear him. He fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. So he's having fits. He's having seizures. He's choking on his own spit. He's, he's choking probably on his tongue. This dad has to deal with this regularly. It gets worse. Look at verse 22. The dad says, oft times it, the demon, hath cast him, my son, into the fire. Well, if he's casting him in the fire, who's getting him out? The dad. The dad is literally going into the fire, grabbing his son and pulling his burnt son out of the fire. Now, when it talks about casting him in the fire, look at verse 22. What's that first word describing how often he is cast into the fire? Oft times. This has been more than once. On more than one occasion, this young man was so controlled by this demonic entity that he's jumping into the fire for what reason? To kill himself. He's not jumping in the fire to dance, have a good time. This demon is trying to kill this boy and do so in very violent, horrible ways. Can this dad have a regular job if his son is attempting to commit suicide in such violent ways? I, I don't know how this man is surviving. I don't know if he's a wealthy man and he has people doing work for him. I don't know... If, he, if he's unwealthy and they're living day to day because he cannot afford to get a job, we don't know. But we do know whatever his financial status is, this is pretty horrible. And I think most men would have given up a long time ago. But not just the fire, right? Keep reading. Into the waters. They go on a walk, go by the river, and all of a sudden this young man jumps in the water. Jumps in the river. Not to swim, but to drown. How does this young man get out of the water? There's only one way. The father must be jumping in after him. And not helping the son who's screaming for help, but helping a son who's probably tearing at his face, punching him, kicking him to let him go so he'll die. This is not a boy with mental health problems. This is a boy who's demon-possessed, and this demon is trying to kill this boy. And this demon would inevitably, I believe strongly, fight against anyone trying to rescue this boy. This father has the wisdom to separate his son from what is controlling his son. This father recognizes that this boy is not my boy. Not When he jumps in the water, that's not my boy. When he jumps in the fire, that's not my boy. When he's having seizures and foaming and whatever chaos and whatever cursing and swearing is coming out of my, his mouth, that is not my boy. I love my boy. I do not love what's in him. I can picture this father as a boy has seizures, the father holding him tightly. I can picture this father as the son starts to run to the water. The father knows exactly what's happening, grabs the boy, and holds him tightly. I can picture this father always, always watchful over his son. Because at any time, this son's life could end violently. That is quite a dad right there. 
Now, Christ responds in verse 19. He says, we're backing up in the story now. O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the disciples. He's speaking even to the scribes that were around because it seems now, I think we can, we can assume pretty strongly, that the scribes and the disciples were talking about this demon-possessed boy. And maybe the scribes were claiming, this is how you get rid of the demon. And the disciples are saying, this is how you get rid of the demon. And they probably both tried, but the boy is still demon-possessed. <laughs> and so Christ is speaking to them, speaking to the crowd, saying, you guys couldn't handle this. Well, I mean, that's a pretty big deal, right? Demon-possession. Yes, it is. Except this isn't the first time they've seen it. They've seen how Christ takes demons from the people. They've seen an example of how it's done. What are they lacking? Well, obviously they're lacking faith because he says in verse 9, you're faithless. He says in verse 21, how long ago since this came out unto him? And uh, basically how long ago did, did the demon torment your son? And that's what in verse 22 he says it happens often. It's, it's all the time. It wasn't like it happened last week or last year or five years or ten years ago. It's all the time this happens to the boy. Now verse 23 if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believes. That's a pretty impressive statement. Christ did not say all things will happen the way you want if you believe. He said all things are possible if you believe. Now that's not the same statement. If Christ said all things will happen as you want if you believe, then we're talking some type of uh, faith um, healing scenario where your faith is sufficient to heal any wound, to heal any sickness, to heal any problem in the world. And there are Christians who believe that very strongly. Up until their faith needs to be tried, and then they have the faith, unshakable, unmovable faith that is expected of them only for the problem to continue, only for the loved one to pass from this life into the next. And then they wonder what happened. Well, they're told, you didn't have enough faith. But that person recognizes, no, no, no. I could not have had more faith than I had. I was completely sure, 100% they were going to be healed. How did they die? Because if their healing was due purely by my faith, they should have been healed. Only, unfortunately, after they're confronted with that reality, do many people recognize this can't be true. This verse is not condoning, encouraging, or teaching faith healing, or any... A separate movement related to that. It says, if you have faith, anything is possible. Well, that's not an, a new statement. That's not a really crazy statement. With all things, I mean, with God, all things are possible, right? So with God, all things are possible. And if you have faith, all things are possible. But in the end, just because it's possible, doesn't mean it's going to happen. A possibility is purely that, a possibility. Christ is the one that's going to decide if that possibility becomes a reality. So, he says to this man, if you have faith, then it is possible for your son to be healed. He still didn't say that his son would be healed. The man's response, verse 24, straightway, immediately, the father of the child cried. Cried out. I don't know if that is a crying out of tears and sobbing or yelling or moaning loudly in anguish or in, in, in utter uh, relief. I don't know that it is relief, and I'll tell you why. Look at verse 24. He cries out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. But it does not end there. Help me, my unbelief. What does that mean? It means 
This man had a level of faith, but this man was honest and he knew and he claimed, my faith is not what it could be. My faith, my faith is not even what it should be. Yes, do I believe that you can? Of course, that's why I'm here with my son. Otherwise, if I didn't believe it, I would not have made this trip. It's no small feat to bring this kid anywhere, right? I am here because I believe. But there's a big part of me that still struggles with true faith that you can and will do what part of me believes you can. Now, a faith healer would state, oh, well, if you don't have complete faith, it can't happen. Your faith needs to be 100% or the miracle is not going to take place. That is the opposite of what we see here. This man claims his faith is not what it should be, and yet you know the story. What does Christ do? He takes the demon from the boy. Now, what I want to really focus on right now is to eliminate this idea that God requires from us 100% faith to use us. That God requires from us 100% commitment to use us. I can tell you right now, that is not the case. You look at the Old Testament, you look at the New Testament, and Scripture is full of men and women who had, who had uh, a lack of faith, Gideon being a major example. I mean, it's always crazy to me how people lift up Gideon as a great example of prayer and faith. I'm like, did you not read the story? This is the opposite way to act. Do not follow Gideon's example. Learn from Gideon's example. The man wanted proof after proof after proof. God kept giving it to him. Finally, he kind of reluctantly followed through with what God said. But that was after multiple steps of God stating, you can trust me in some way or fashion. Gideon's prayer life is not to be commended. Gideon's faith is not to be commended on the level that we see. Obviously, Hebrews 11 mentions Gideon's faith. Puts him in the hall of faith. So then, Pastor Russ, who's right? You are the Bible. Look, obviously the Bible knows what it's talking about. What I'm trying to tell you is this. God commends our faith even when it lacks. That's what I'm trying to say. And God commends Gideon even though Gideon lacked faith. Why? Because even though Gideon lacked faith, he still eventually did, in faith, what God asked, even though it was so hard for him. Even though he was so weak, he did follow through, and God says, that is commendable. Now, possibly more so. I'm sure it was harder for Gideon to follow through to the very end, taking on that enemy army with the weak faith that he had. A lot harder for him than someone like David, who had uh, ample amount of faith. <laughs> And that's, I think, the point for this guy here, this father. It was hard for him, on many levels, physically hard, emotionally hard, spiritually hard, to bring this boy to Christ and to trust Christ to heal him. It was hard, but he did it anyways. I think a lot of us say, well, if I can't trust Christ completely, then I have no expectation that it will help me. Well, that's not in the Bible. God often helps us in spite of our failures, in spite of our weaknesses, not because we have no failures or have no weaknesses. A lot of Christians struggle with their eternal security. They struggle with, am I even saved? Because, you know, there are days where I struggle with my faith. Am I going to heaven? Because there are days where I am weak spiritually. And I would point to this story to show you God's response to the weak. God doesn't kick the weak while they are down. God gives the weak something to see that will strengthen them. Another great example is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is imprisoned. His head is about to be chopped off. 
He's in a very bad place emotionally. He's in a dark place spiritually. And in prison, he begins to doubt his really focus of his ministry being Christ. He doubts it. And he says, is Christ really the one we've been waiting for? He sends some of his disciples to ask Christ, are you the one? Christ did not belittle John in his moment of weakness. Christ did not demean John in his spiritually dark place. Christ did miracles. He showed miracle after miracle after miracle to those disciples. Then he said, now go and tell John what you saw. What I love about God, so many things, but this is a really big one for me. God doesn't turn his back on us in our struggles, in our weaknesses, in our dark places. I see God shining the light brighter, if you will just look at it. Shining the light brighter to give us something to grasp at. So we can know God is real. So, we're told in verse 24, this man says, Help me, my unbelief. When Jesus saw the people come running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more. The spirit cries, rinse him, tears him apart, comes out of him. When I say tears him apart, obviously the boy, I would imagine, had convulsions again, and had an attack. And then he was still. People thought he was dead, verse 26. In the end, Christ lifts him up and uh, allows him to go back with his father to his home. Christ is very compassionate to those who are struggling, spiritually, emotionally. We need to do the same. A lot of times Christians almost cause those who are already doubting their salvation to doubt it even more. A lot of Christians, when they talk to teenagers and they say, well, I'm not sure if I'm saved. You know what the common phrase is? Well, let's, let's ask the Lord to save you right now. You are just confirming that they really aren't saved by having them do that. And then that student will want you to lead them in prayer every time they struggle, which for some could be weekly. For some could be monthly, but whatever the case, more than once is too many times. Because you are affirming their weakness and basically agreeing that because you don't have faith right now, because you're struggling, maybe you aren't saved, so let's see you saved now. I realized a long time ago that's one of the worst things you can do. So when I was a youth pastor in my 20s, and I had dealt with teenagers who struggled with eternal security, instead of saying, let's pray and make sure you're saved, I said, let's look at Scripture and see truth and let truth show you if you are saved or not. And almost every time, after looking at Scripture, I'd ask the question, all right, do you believe Christ is the Son of God? They say, yes. I said, that's what the Bible says. Do you believe Christ came to this earth and died, died for sin because we're sinners and death is the payment? Do you believe it? They said, yes. I said, do you believe, according to Scripture, right here I show them the verse, do you believe that Christ rose again? Yes, I believe that. Okay, then. Do you believe that Christ always tells the truth, never lies? Well, yeah, Christ, of course God doesn't lie. Okay, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God and therefore can be trusted completely and does not lie? Of course I believe that. Okay, then. Do you believe Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved? Well, if that's what the Bible says, yes. Okay, then. Did you call on the name of the Lord? Did you, Romans 10, 9, trust in Christ to save you? Well, yeah, I did. All right, then. God's promise is your security. Not today's choices. Not yesterday's regrets. Those are not your security. Your security is the promise God offers you. And his promise is given to those who followed 
his way, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And his way is very clear here. So I didn't say let's get saved again. I said let's look at scripture again. And for some students, it was more than once. Let's look at scripture again. There was sometimes, with some teenagers, I would have them write the verses in the Bible, so every time they struggled, they would just be able to look at it on their own. They kept going to truth to remind them of what God said, rather than believing that their lack of faith, in their lack of faith, God had rejected them. I do not see that in Scripture. Let's go to Matthew chapter 17 now, verse 24. Matthew 17, 24. Of course, the story here, another very common story. The apostle Peter is confronted uh, by some, we're told in verse 24, in Capernaum. They that receive the tribute money. These are the, the people who are temple workers. Their job is to make sure every Jew has paid their annual, you might say, temple tax. And they'd have a list of people who did and did not. They must have in some way checked the disciples. Now, think of it this way. The IRS does not know if everyone has paid their taxes, but the IRS is, when their attention is drawn to a certain individual by a, a movie, a, a TV interview that they take, and that person talks about all their assets and, and starts to brag about all the ways they, they don't pay taxes, you can be sure the IRS is going to do an audit on someone foolish enough to make public statements of them skirting the laws, right? Or just public figures, especially public figures that are not well-liked. Christ is not well-liked by the religious people. I have no doubt of what's going on here. The temple tax workers, either on their own or were told, and I think told by the Pharisees and Sadducees, hey, check up on these guys. Did they pay the temple taxes? Let's see if there's something we can get them on, right? Now, it's interesting they only went to Peter, which I think maybe the other disciples did pay the temple tax, which is why they only went to Peter. Or maybe they went to Peter first, and uh, with the others later, or we don't know. But they went to Peter. Peter had not paid his temple tax, which was a yearly um, required amount, because you're a Jew, to give to the temple. The upkeep and, and the expansion and all that kind of stuff. So they come to him and say, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him saying, Now, Peter says yes. Why did he say yes? Because Christ hadn't paid the tribute. Peter says yes, assuming yes, because he thinks, well, it's the right thing to do. It's the lawful thing to do. I know Christ. Christ always does the right thing. Christ always follows the law. So, of course he did. Be like someone coming to you and say, does your pastor pay his taxes? Your answer is going to be, yeah, of course he does. You haven't asked me if I pay my taxes. You're going to assume I pay my taxes. They may say, oh, but is he, does he pay taxes on all of his money? And you would say, yeah, he pays taxes on all of his money. And you come to me, and you say, you do pay taxes on all your money, right? And I would say, actually, no, I don't. I have housing allowance. I'm not required to pay taxes on housing allowance. The government allows me to be non-taxed on housing allowance. So, no, I don't pay on everything, but all the non-housing allowance. Yes, I pay taxes on all that. And so that's basically the conversation Christ has with Peter. So Peter comes to him, and in... Peter does not actually ask Christ. Christ knows what's on Peter's heart. Now, I told you, I believe that these tribute takers asked Peter because they assumed strongly neither Peter nor Christ had paid, or they knew they did. I mean, they're, they are the ones keeping records. It would be pretty easy for them to do a little bit of work to find out, did Jesus of Nazareth pay his temple tax? And they would be able to say, 
Nowhere on the list. So unless he paid it and someone made a mistake, human error, or he hasn't paid it, you know, that's the only two options. So did they accuse Christ? No, they just put that seed of doubt in Peter's mind. Very sneaky of them, right? That's often what Satan does. Half the Lord said. Doesn't outrightly accuse, just puts the seed of doubt in there. So, so Peter obviously is doubting. Why? Because he's still thinking about it. He's probably wondering, wait a second. I've been with Christ more than a year now. I've never actually seen him pay the temple tax. So unless he did it when I was sleeping one time or he walked away unbeknownst to me, maybe I was wrong. Maybe Christ doesn't pay his taxes. And Peter's bothered by that. Christ sees Peter is bothered. It may have been obvious, but whether it was or was not, again, Christ is God. So he knows. So Christ says, Simon, whom do the kings of the earth take customer tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Do the children of the king have to pay taxes? Peter says, well, of course, the children of the king don't pay taxes. It's the strangers. It's the ones who are not related to the king. He says, Christ says in verse 26, the children are free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea and cast a hook. Okay. If it's a temple tax, the tax is going to the temple, but ultimately for whose glory? God's glory. Why would God the Son pay a temple tax for God the Father? Not needed. Not necessary. And that is the reason Christ didn't pay the taxes. Now, do you think that those who received the tribute would have agreed with Christ's logic? Obviously not. Even if they believed Christ to be the Son of God, do you think they would have agreed with his logic? I would still say probably not. They'd probably still say, even if you are the Messiah, it's like, you know, everyone's supposed to do this. You should be doing it more than anyone else as an example to your disciples, right? Like, even if you don't technically have to, you should do this. I'm pretty confident a lot of people would disagree with the logic of Christ. Just as today, a lot of people disagree with the logic of Christ. On how he deals with people, on, how, on way, the ways he handles things, on, on his definition of morality, what is right and wrong. A lot of people disagree with his logic, but Christ isn't responsible for what people believe. Christ is responsible for truth. But in this case, Christ tells Peter, I want you to go fishing. You're going to catch one single fish. You're going to open up that fish, and out of that fish will come a single coin. He says one coin. And that single coin will be sufficient to cover my temple tax tribute, and who else's? Yours. Because Christ knew Peter hadn't paid his yet either. Now, maybe Peter was intending to. We don't know, right? Maybe Peter hasn't paid the tribute tax for some years. We don't know. But Christ says it'll cover both of us, Peter. So that's the story. But what's the lesson? The lesson is we can use truth to justify our choices and know in our hearts that we are right. And then you could say, I don't care if you disagree with me or not. I'm right. I can show you scripture why I am right. And I'm going to do what I believe is right, whether you like it or not, whether it offends you or not. You are welcome to that philosophy. But that is not the philosophy of Christ. And it is not the philosophy of the Apostle Paul, a very dedicated follower of Christ. Throughout the epistles, the Apostle Paul speaks on more than one occasion of not purposely offending other people. The Apostle Paul says, I myself, will not eat meat around those who are offended by it. I won't even eat it at all around them. 
Now, he even implies that maybe he, doesn't, he, he went full vegetarian. I mean, the implication is there. He might have intended us to, to believe that he stopped eating eat altogether. But he definitely clarifies for us, if you're around someone who's offended by you eating meat, don't eat it. Now, in that text, it was referring to meat offered to idols, not just meat in general. But the Apostle Paul was more concerned about other people's emotional and spiritual condition than he was about his own comfort. Christ was completely in his power to say, I don't owe the temple anything. The temple was built for me. I wasn't built for the temple. The temple owes me. I don't owe the temple. Christ was in his right. But Christ wasn't here to cause offense unnecessarily. Much of what Christ stood for, much of what Christ stated and taught, did offend people. But if Christ could still live true and not offend people, he's going to go with that. Much of what we do as Christians is going to offend people. Our belief, it's going to offend the world. Our, our moral standards, they offend the world because they don't have the moral standards as us, and our moral standards come across to them as judging them. So they'll be offended. I'm not going to change that so they're not offended. But when I can change something that is of little consequence to me, when I can change something that does not affect my spiritual condition or my values or my morality or my truth, when I can change that to not offend them, then I need to seriously consider changing that. Them and you. Now the truth is, guys, you can't change everything to not offend anyone or you'd always be changing you would always be something different to someone different. So you can only change so much, right? You have to decide which changes are necessary and which ones uh, will really help people and which ones just, you know, address an issue for five minutes and then there's another issue they're going to have with you five minutes later anyways, right? Like some people, you'll never be able to completely please. I don't know that I would bend over backwards or that I'd bend over at all to not offend someone who's just going to be offended by something I do tomorrow anyways, but if there are people who are sincerely wanting to do right and are watching me and my adjustment in my choices would help them, then I probably would seriously consider doing that. And that's the story of the tribute money. Our last slide today, let's go ahead and take a look at Luke. Luke chapter 9. All very familiar stories tonight. Verse 46. Then there arose... A reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest. I love that word, reasoning. What, what are they doing? They're discussing, they're debating. But the reasoning, you know, they're not really yelling at each other. I think that word reasoning clarifies for us. They're not screaming and throwing stones at each other and tripping each other and kicking each other. They're basically having a, an adult man discussion. And in this discussion, they're giving their logic of which one of them is better than the other. Well, I'm better because I was the first one to see Christ, says John. Well, you know, says Philip, don't you remember what Christ said about me when he first met me? And, and Nathaniel says, oh, yes, but he said I was a man of no, gu no guile. So, you know, did he say that to any of you? And then Peter says, look, guys, stop. I'm the rock, okay? He called me the rock, so I'm the best, right? Oh, well, I'm the best because I was with Christ when he did this miracle. Well, I'm the best because Christ asked me in my opinion with, with the loaves and the fish, and I'm the best. So the reasoning among themselves, trying to convince themselves and the others that they are the best. So, we read uh, verse 47, Jesus perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child. Now, 
When it states he received the thought of their heart, that means he was not in listening distance. So I imagine Christ is walking in front. I, I, I picture Christ speaking with someone. I don't imagine Christ was often on his own. If you were in Christ's presence and no one else is with him, I can tell you what I'd be doing. I'd be walking next to him and say, hey, so Christ, no, no one else is here. Can we talk, right? I am sure people are always with Christ. So Christ is probably talking with someone up front as the apostles start to kind of lean to the back, head to the back a little bit to have this conversation about who's the best. So Christ perceiving their hearts, not hearing them, takes a child and sets the child by him. I don't know if that means, you know, sitting on his lap and holding the child, verse 48. Whoever shall receive this child in my name receives me. And whoever shall receive me receives him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be greatest. Humility. Service. Meekness. These are the qualities of someone who truly strives to be like Christ. Recently, I saw a pastor. He was, I, I assume, doing some studying, and he, I'm sure he knew the answer. He just wanted to get an idea of what other pastors thought. So on a public forum, this pastor asked a question, what do you think are the greatest or best, most important qualities of a follower of Christ? of a spiritual leader, specifically a pastor. What would you expect to see in a pastor? That piqued my interest. I mean, I know what I expect to see, but I was wondering, what do these other pastors think should be within a pastor? So some of them mentioned, well, the qualities of 1 Timothy 3. I thought, well, that's really good. I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? You're going to have a pastor, you should look at 1 Timothy 3, which tells you the qualities of the pastor. That's a good one. And, and others mentioned other things. But I was really happy to see that more than one person mentioned this. Humility. A lot mentioned love. Love, you know, they need to have love, and I totally agree with that. But humility. I believe that humility will do more for your impact on the lives of others than almost any other quality. Let me explain. I actually said this at our marriage retreat, retreat that we just had. A lot of people think that love, and love is the greatest commandment. You need to have love. You need to show love. That is the, the foundation for all things, and all of the commandments are wrapped up in love. I am not trying to uh, eliminate that statement or replace that statement. Obviously, that statement is true. Everything is wrapped up in love. But when love is given through pride, it's not love. Because when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the definition of love is given and it is one of selflessness, thinking about others first, placing others first, not yourself first. So when you just say love is the greatest thing, yes, that's true. That's even scriptural. But are we talking about love as defined in 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love or just your own definition of love, the way you like to love, uh, what you claim is love? Because that's not really the same thing. And so when I say humility, here's the thing. If you are humble, you are showing love. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that. It says, when you place the needs of others, that is love. Charity doesn't put itself first. So by being humble and wanting to serve others more than you want to be served, 
by being humble and stepping off the platform and saying, no, no, I don't need to be elevated above people. I am no better than people. I want to step down with people and help people. When you do that, you are showing love. And you're showing love as God defines it in 1 Corinthians 13. You say, well, Pastor Russ, I mean, I, I try to be humble, but I really still do struggle with love. You are more likely to get to a point where you are loving people scripturally if you start with humility. The problem is a lot of Christians start with what they believe is love. It justifies all the other things that they do. And they say, well, as long as I'm loving people, everything else is good. Like, I can be prideful, I can be selfish, I can do all these things, I can act this way because I'm loving people. That's really what matters. Except you're not really loving people. And your pride is justifying this unhealthy, unbiblical, unhelpful style of love that you're throwing at people. Humility. I, personally, would rather take a person as a spiritual leader in my life who was humble but still working towards love. Figuring out what that looked like. Because I can tell you, if they're humble, they will figure it out. It will happen. Over the person who seems to be loving, the person who claims I would give my shirt off my back, and who often does, and gives and helps and is there, it seems that they have love. But if I see pride in their life, then I can tell you right now, I've learned that love is just a facade. Because here's what happens with those kinds of leaders. They love you strongly until they don't. They would give you anything until they won't. And what happens? What is it that causes them to love you, to not love you, to give to you, to then not give to you? It's usually, almost always, you. You did something they did not like. And now, not only will they not give you that shirt, they want all the shirts they gave you back. And now, not only will they not treat you with kindness, they will treat you with unkindness. Everything they did for you is almost destroyed, if not completely eliminated, because of what you did, a misstep. You really did make a mistake. You made them mad. You regret it. You recognize it. But this person just came down way too hard on you. But you know what's not even that? These people who show love and kindness and sacrificial giving, they will stop loving you, not even because you did something wrong, but because you did something different than what they wanted. How dare you not take my advice? I thought you trusted me. I thought that we were friends. I thought I was your pastor. Why would you do this when I told you not to? Well, I mean, I, it was, it's not a scriptural thing. I thought it was advice. Yeah, but it's advice from your pastor, which is like right up there with scripture. Why wouldn't you do it? I told you to. Because it's my life. What do you mean it's your life? Don't you know I answer to God for your soul? Your choices affect me. I'm your pastor. Your choices cause me to have to come to God in prayer with regret. Because I have done you wrong by not controlling you towards right, they would say, or think, or justify. And then, you'll find out real fast how shallow their love always was. 
because it's gone in an instant. That's not love. It was a form of love. It was a facade. It was a front. But it was just the outward layer because the inside was all pride. Now, I've come to recognize pride really easy, really fast. First and foremost, because I struggle with it and, and still do have to battle in my life. But I was given wholeheartedly over to it. I know what that life looks like. I, I can describe very clearly to you how those people think because I was that kind of person years and years ago. I, I can sympathize with those people. I get it. It's not healthy. It's not good. I was there, so I know. And I have come so far from that because I don't want to be destroyed or destroy people that I am so sensitive to seeing it in the lives of other people, especially spiritual leaders. And so I'm telling you, just because someone seems to be loving doesn't mean that they're going to do right by everyone. And it's really hard to go from prideful love to humility. It's a whole lot easier to go from humility, not really understanding how love works. Maybe there's, uh, they're, they're naive. Maybe they lack education. Maybe they lack experience. So they're not sure, how do I love people? In what way should I love people? What's the good kind of love versus the kind of love that just comes across creepy? What's the kind of love that's actually helpful? They're learning these things. No problem. They're humble. I'll help them. They're humble. I'll take them and let them learn it with God. Like They will learn it. And so for me, if there is one thing and only one thing that a young man or young woman said, what should I focus on? Just give me one. That's all I can handle. I would tell them every single time. Focus on humility. Do that. You will be showing love. And you'll learn the rest as you go. But if you get it backwards and focus on these other things and lose out on humility and take pride with you, pride will taint everything else you do. These men obviously struggle with pride. Christ calls them out on it. And he says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, be like this child who recognizes his place. He's not arguing who's the greatest. He's just happy to be near me. He's happy to be in my presence. He knows he's not the greatest because he's a child. And I'll tell you, saying you're not great is one thing. Truly believing it is all something together different. <laughs> There's a lot of people who claim, oh, I'm not great. I'm nothing wonderful. I'm nothing special. But in their head, they think, but I'm really special. <laughs> I'm not great. Yes, I am. I'm not wonderful, but I'm better than other people. Like, you can say whatever you want. I am not claiming to lie about yourself. Don't say, well, I'm not great at, at, at music when everyone knows you have the voice of an angel, right? You, you obviously can't sing. Oh, I'm not great at art when people look at you and say, wow, that art brings me to tears. Obviously, you're great at art. It is okay to recognize that you are good and really good at certain things. It is not okay to claim that you as a person are great because you have great art. That you are a person are great because you have a voice that God gave you. Yes, you worked on it. Yes, you conditioned it. You trained it. But the voice was given to you by God. Do I do certain things well? Yes. Some of which I just have a talent for. God has given me that talent. Other things I've had to work at getting better at. But look, none of the things I do well make me a better person. None of the things I do well make me better than you. I am still me in need of a savior. I'm just a wretch that has been blessed by God with some talents that I try to use for him. But these talents don't make me better. These talents allow me to serve him better. And that is the difference.
Humility can recognize that I'm really good at certain things. And I'm glad I can do these really good things for God. That's humility. Pride says, I'm really good at these things. Man, I'm a great person. <laughs> I'm really good at these things, therefore I'm better than you. That's pride. So, how are you doing with humility? And it's a topic I discuss often throughout Scripture, throughout my messages. I probably bring up humility and pride more than any other character trait. I would say very likely that is the case. Love might be the second thing I bring up the mo uh, second most. Why? Because I believe these two, humility being the first, are the two greatest attributes the Christian can and should have. So, let's keep them as a priority. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for tonight, the chance to look into your words and to be blessed by the truth of Scripture. I pray that we would continue in humility, grow in our humility, and as our humility grows, love, faith, and all these other attributes that are important to the Christian life would also grow with it. In Jesus' name.